Hey everybody, Joseph here, one of the pastors at the First Presbyterian Church of Flint, and I wanted to welcome you to our sermon podcast, a show that features the latest sermons preached here at First Pres. But first, a little bit about us. The First Presbyterian Church of Flint is an historic downtown congregation, proudly part of the Presbyterian Church USA, the largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States. We have a vibrant and thriving ministry to our neighbors here in Flint and are engaged weekly in worship, faith formation, a dynamic ministry to kids and teenagers, and community building across generations. You can learn more at fpcf.org. You can check out our weekly live stream broadcasts on our channel on YouTube. But better yet, you can stop by any Sunday at 9.30 to worship with us. We'd love to welcome you and your family to worship. Now, here's this week's sermon. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Let the church of Jesus Christ say, I habitually wanted to turn and Church, let me start right out with something practical. You can use this right away. You can use it right now. Are you ready? This will come in handy, especially for those who tomorrow are going to be hastily writing notes of affection on Valentine's Day. Uh, But these words of wisdom I'm about to give you uh, are good year-round. For all kinds of seasons and holidays and festivals, you can include them on birthday cards, Christmas cards, you can use them in wedding toasts. High school kids, you can, you can use these in your will you go uh, to prom with me speeches. You can, uh, you, older married folks, you can look into your spouse's eyes of 40, 45, 50 years and you can repeat these words and I guarantee they will leave a profound impact. Are you ready? The best part about these words I'm going to give you is that they're straight out of the Bible, and if you're asked about that, you can honestly say, I heard these words read out loud at church on Sunday. Are you ready? Here's the advice. Look, you look deeply into the eyes of your beloved. You examine their soul for a moment. And then you simply say this, Baby, the heart is devious above all else. It is perverse. Who can understand it? Parents of preschoolers, if you're choosing to use these words on your kids' class valentines, be sure to underline the word devious. Uh, The other kid gets the point. I'm kidding, church. I'm not kidding that these words aren't in the Bible. I mean, they are. Uh, But today, I would like to address, uh, to... Uh, uh, direct our spiritual attention not to Jeremiah's words of warning and truth, but instead to Jesus' words of warning and truth from Luke chapter 6, a section of scripture that we affectionately call the Sermon on the Plain. You've heard of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the Sermon on the Plain. Matthew's gospel has a lengthy teaching unit of Jesus, a lengthy three-chapter-long sermon that we call the Sermon on the Mount, because as Jesus is delivering the sermon, he is said to be up on a mountain. 
In that sermon, Jesus begins with words of blessing, and then he continues into ethical discourse about how kingdom-minded people ought to act, give, pray, love, and serve in this world. Luke's gospel also has a teaching unit of Jesus, but this one isn't three chapters long. It's only about a half chapter long. It also begins with words of blessing and continues into an ethical discourse about what life in God's kingdom ought to look like, but these words are not delivered on a mountaintop. Rather, they're delivered from, as verse 17 said in our reading today, a level place or a plain Hence the name Sermon on the Plain. Here's a picture of a possible site for what... No picture. There we go. Here's a picture of what uh, uh, a possible uh, site for the Sermon on the Plain might have been. uh, Overlooking the Sea of Galilee. You can see that in the distance. And just as Luke describes it, this is in fact a level place. It is uh, the speaker would have to stand and look up to address his audience, right? You can see that speaker to the far right looking up and addressing the crowd there. Um, And so keep this picture in mind as we consider the opening part to Jesus' sermon today. Now these words of Jesus today from Luke 6 have captured my homiletical energy this morning, and I want to invite you to consider these vital, weighty, and if I say it, off-putting words of Jesus so that we might find ourselves reshaped and made ready to live them out. So grab your Bibles and turn to Luke 6, or grab your orders of worship and find today's gospel reading there and hang on to your hats. Might be a bit of a bumpy ride today. I have three points that I want to make today about this text that might assist us in understanding these words of Jesus. So if you're of the note-taking stock, have a pencil ready, and if you're not, don't worry. But first things first, I want to start with some context. Where are we? What's going on in the Gospel of Luke? How did we get from last week's reading of a bunch of fishermen who are called to follow Jesus in Luke 5 to this story about Jesus teaching about blessings and woes in God's kingdom. What have we missed? Well, we missed the story of a man covered with leprosy who was healed by Jesus, who told him to make sure to go to church the next week and let the pastor know he was healed. We missed a note that Luke makes that Jesus would often withdraw into deserted places to pray. We missed the story of some courageous friends who carried a paralyzed man to Jesus and who ended up digging out the thatch and pitch of a roof in order to lower their friend down to Jesus. We missed Jesus uh, seeing a tax collector who was collecting inflated tolls from people who crossed Roman boundary lines, a man who Jesus would uh, call to join up as a follower and a disciple. We missed. Sorry. We missed the great banquet which that tax collector threw for Jesus, where other tax collectors came to hear Jesus, and where the senior pastors and expert religious people rolled their eyes at the kind of company Jesus kept. We miss words about Jesus's wisdom about how 
Sometimes new wine needs new wineskins. A reminder that sometimes the new work of God requires new paradigms, and new systems, new structures. We miss Jesus reminding all of us that the Sabbath is, is a gift to us. One that we can enjoy without fear of divine punishment or wrath because we did something small like picked grain. We miss Jesus preaching at a local synagogue where he heals a man with a shriveled hand which was a violation of the technical code of conduct for Sabbath behavior, and in healing him anyway, Jesus becomes an enemy to those who cared about the letter of the law. And then we come to the middle of Luke 6, where we read these words. Josh, can you put those words up from Luke 6? Now, during those days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and Jesus spent the night in prayer to God, And when day came, he called his disciples and chose 12 of them, whom he also named apostles. Here's a list. Simon, who he called Peter, his brother Andrew and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And then he came down with them the apostles, and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. Then Jesus looked up at his disciples and said. That's how we get from last week to this week. It's been a bit of a wild ride in Galilee for Jesus and his crew since the disciples left their nets to follow him. They've seen a lot. They've heard a lot. They've witnessed miracles and wonders and healings, and here they are with Jesus and a bunch of other folks out on this level place. And Jesus is going to preach. When you go to seminary, you have to take classes on preaching. And during those preaching classes, you have to read about preaching. You have to go to lectures and workshops about how to preach. You have to then show up to your class one day and deliver a sermon to your classmates and professor who then grades you live on a rubric and then evaluate you orally afterwards right after you're done. And if that's not fun enough, they record your sermons for you, and then they give you a video of it and make you do your own self-evaluation and submit an evaluation of yourself. And if you think it can't get worse, it can, because you have to do this twice in a 10-week term. Then you have to do it all over again the next term and the next term, because we had to take three preaching classes at my seminary. Now, the upshot of all of this is that you end up graduating seminary with six sample sermons recorded with good video and good audio that for you, the first-time pastor who might have never preached before in a church, can show to search committees who might want to know what your preaching style is like. So you depend on these preaching class sermons to sort of get the foot in the door of an interview as you're interviewing for permissions. They're samples of what your preaching might be like. Today, I think it's helpful to view the Sermon on the Plain as 
Luke, in Luke's gospel is something like a sample sermon of Jesus that Luke gives us. These words are supposed to be taken by us as sort of indicative of the kinds of things Jesus was saying when he would speak in synagogues or at dinner parties. The content of the Sermon on the Plain is sort of a condensed way of saying, look, this is what Jesus used to preach like. This is the substance of what Jesus used to communicate to us uh, when people wondered what he was all about. So that's the context. That's, that's what's going on to get us to this point. But I want to make my first point. Are you ready? First point about today's reading, and that's answering the question, who is Jesus addressing with these blessings and woes. And so my first point is this. Jesus is talking to the whole church. Jesus is talking to the whole church. The first thing that we need to know is that Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's not just talking to the apostles. He's not just talking to the elders, the session members. He's talking, he's not just talking to the deacons or the choir members. He's talking to the disciples. The text says in verse 17, Jesus looks up at his disciples and said to them, Blessed are you and woe to you. Earlier, we see that Luke has established three groups of people sort of in Jesus's immediate radius. There are the apostles, the 12 people Jesus picks out for particular leadership roles. There are the disciples, those who have joined up and expressed a desire to pattern their life after Jesus. And then there are the crowds, those who are there out of curiosity or merely just to be healed. They are the most fickle of the three groups, and Luke often just calls them the crowds. You have apostles, you have disciples, you have the crowds. And the text today says Jesus looks up at his disciples, not just the apostles, not necessarily the crowds. Jesus is addressing the church, us, you and me. And Jesus is announcing blessings and he is announcing woes to the whole church. Jesus looks up at this crowd of disciples, people who have said, I want to follow you, and he sees economically disadvantaged and immensely well-off in the same group. He sees starving folks and people enjoying beautifully, wonderfully created fancy dinners. He sees people who are weeping and people who are laughing. He sees people who are spoken poorly of and mocked and others who are being praised by everybody. All of those among the people who are considered to be his disciples. And so Jesus chooses at this moment, looking up at this wildly disparate group, Jesus chooses to speak to everybody. It's like Jesus is looking out at a church congregation and he's talking to all of us, not just the leaders, and not the folks who are outside of the walls of the church. This is in-house, intra-family talk. Jesus is talking to the whole church. The second point I want to make about this text is this. The word blessed doesn't mean what you think it means. The word blessed doesn't mean what you think it means. 
think sometimes we misunderstand the idea of blessed to mean happy. Super content. Joyful, even. We view blessings as sort of this, like, I'm passive, of a passive recipient of something from God. And so it doesn't make any sense when we read this, blessed are you who are poor, because it's like, wait, did God give this poverty to me? Is that what this text means? But the word blessed doesn't mean happy, and it doesn't mean this idea of receiving something from God. The best way to translate the word blessed here, the Greek word that's used, is to use the word noble or respectable. It's not just a passive reception of divine favor. This is rather a mode of being. Respectable are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Who is respectable in God's kingdom according to Jesus? Well, in this text, we see that those who are respectable are the poor, economically poor. Those who are weeping, those who are hungry, those who are spoken poorly of by the masses. And why? Why are these people viewed by Christ to be respectable, noble, worthy of admiration and emulation? Why? And I think it's because of this, that when you are pushed to the limits of your resources, when you are pushed to the edges of what you can manage on your own, you must exercise a profound dependence upon the Lord. I know there are people here in this space right now who have been in that place. And whether it's economically or whether it's relationally or whether it's emotionally or whether it's psychologically, when we find ourselves pressed out to our outer limits of what we can handle, we find ourselves needing the Lord, depending, looking to God's provision, grateful for every small measure of provision, tangibly aware of how things are being given to us by God, the way God is sustaining us. We feel consciously aware of those things. I know some of you have been in that place. Jesus says that is where we ought to be no matter what our economic situation is. Respectable are you who are poor, who have found that dependency on the Lord, Jesus says. Respectable, noble are you who know the depths of human suffering and sorrow and who know what it means to mourn and weep. Noble are you. And the promise is that, that there will be a reversal that comes in God's kingdom, that those who are poor will find themselves heirs of everything, and that those who are weeping will find themselves laughing again. There is something here, Jesus says, about being dependent upon God. And to say this, to say noble are you who are poor, is to go against every religious instinct of many in Jesus' day who saw the same types of people, the poor, the sick, the marginalized, not as noble or respectable, but rather as recipients of divine wrath. 
those who either committed grievous sins themselves or whose parents or grandparents did. Think about the text in the Gospel of John. Jesus and his disciples are walking along, and they see a man who was born blind. And what do his disciples ask Jesus? They say, teacher, who sinned, this guy or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, what? Like, you got it all wrong. That's not how it works. Here Jesus is speaking counterculturally to those who want to see economic substance as a mark of divine favor. And Jesus says, that's not exactly how it works in God's kingdom. The second point I want to make is that blessed doesn't mean what we think it means. The third point I want to make today is this. Woes are not curses. Woes aren't curses. We hear Jesus' words and we take them harshly. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Ooh! Woe to you who are laughing. Well, I was laughing. Woe to you, for you will mourn and weep. There, there seems to be a sense of uh, harshness to Jesus' words, and we, we imagine that Jesus is, is pronouncing blessings on some and curses on other people, and we start looking at our own resources, and we realize, oh my goodness, is Jesus speaking about me? Am I being cursed in this text? But woe doesn't mean curse. Woe is an English transliteration of a Greek transliteration of a Hebrew word. That doesn't mean curse. Curses have this sense of sort of a definitive, pre-decided thing, like either you're blessed or you're cursed, so deal with it. But the word woe is more like, watch out, be careful, look out. Woe is a boundary fence on an Olympic slalom course that keeps people on track when they're sliding down out of control, like I've watched so many skiers do these past couple weeks. Woe is when a green light turns to a yellow light on a slippery February morning. Woe means watch out. If you watch Star Trek, it's red alert. Watch out. And in using this word, woe, Jesus is sort of warning those with adequate means in the church to watch out that the means don't become your final end. Watch out, Jesus says, that you don't get lost in your own comfort and ease. Watch out that you don't come to really, really, really like it when people say nice things about you. Watch out, Jesus is warning if that becomes the end, and if you forget the cause of the poor in your midst, if you forget the cause of the hungry and the rejected in the same church pews, then your own soul might become compromised, and you might be unable to see the kingdom of God as good news at all. Watch out, Jesus says. Woe means watch out. One of the things my family likes to do when we get together for family events is we like to play games. 
and we, uh, we like to play sort of like big group games. We, my family uh, has about 15 or 20 people that gets together when we get together, and so sometimes we play games that everyone can play at once, and so some games are more naturally inclined to this, like, for example, the game Pictionary, which is a fam uh, favorite game around our house. And uh, we have, we, we play Pictionary better than you do because we have a huge whiteboard that we bring out and we draw on the whiteboard and it's, uh, it's always fun to guess and to try to win and we usually divide up uh, boys versus girls or men versus women and we have a wonderful time playing. And whenever my Uncle Joe, my dad's uh, oldest brother, comes to visit, he enjoys playing. But we always make fun of him a little bit because when Uncle Joe gets up to draw a word, he gets about halfway through a drawing and we can't tell what it is, but all he does is he just keeps pointing to it. Like over and over and over again. The marker, the whiteboard is filled up with just his little dots touching the thing, like pointing, and we're all trying to guess. This is a circle. No, point, point, point. What is this? We don't know. His time expires. He's still pointing at the thing. And I was thinking about that moment because I think what Jesus is doing in this text is he is taking the, those in the church who are at their extremes and he is just pointing it out to everybody. Like, do you see? Are you noticing what I'm noticing? Are you looking around the church? Do you see people who are weeping? Do you see people who are economically at their margins? Do you see people who are hungry? Do you see people who are being mocked? Do you see this? With the expectation that if we see it, we will do something about it. It's as if Jesus is asking us, so what? What are you all going to do about these people right here, right with us, right now, who are in need? There's good news for them that comes in the kingdom, but what about right now? What are we doing? And I think these words of blessings and woes are, in fact, a challenge to those of us who have been given much. It's not a shame on you for being rich. It's not a shame on you for laughing. There's no shame or guilt that associated with the actual product. The thing here is Jesus is saying, but look at this. Don't forget this. Look at the reality on the ground. What are we doing about this as well? With what you do have, how are we using it generously in ways that relieves a bit of the burden that the poor carry? Remember, Jesus is looking at his disciples. He's not looking at the world right here. He's not necessarily addressing the Jeff Bezos or the Bill Gates or the 0.001% of the world. He's looking at the people who have said, yes, Lord, I want to follow you. He's talking to people in the church. And so Jesus is speaking to us. And he's reminding us that the truly respectable church people are those who look daily to God to meet their needs. And this trust, this dependency, this pattern, rhythmic uh, leaning on the Lord in times of personal distress is exemplary behavior according to Christ. And Jesus also addresses those of us who have enough. And that tells us to take care, to watch out that we are going out of our way to take our resources and find ways to support, assist, and care for those in our church family who are in need. If we do not, Jesus says, 
if we don't, if we decide to pad our margins more or build bigger barns to store our stuff, Jesus says we better watch out. The kingdom might not be a place we want to be in. One day, Jesus promises that the way of this world will come to an end, and it will be replaced with a new world, one of God's choosing and God's devising. We here at this church, First Presbyterian Church of Flint, we are just as much a mixed bag of conditions as any church that has ever gone before us. We have those here in these pews who are suffering, who are hurting, who are feeling shoved out to the margins, and we have others who are feeling very blessed, very, very, very blessed. Here we are as a church family, and I think how do we find ways to get to know one another in such a way that we find ways to meet one another's needs? I don't care about how the world acts or behaves. I don't care what laws are passed about this. I care about us here as a church. How are we putting on display a different kind of church community, a different kind of relationship with one another? One that is not about how much have you done to earn favor or all this, but what are we doing to care, to uplift, to support, to strengthen, to form bonds of community, to say, here it's going to be a little bit different. Here, if you have a need, we find a way to help you meet it. Here, if you are suffering, you can be comforted. Here is a place for you to be and to find yourself unwinding in the presence of God. As we labor and journey towards that end, might God go with us. Bless us, each. I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.